Chapter 38 is a seldom read or seldom taught section of Scripture that's sandwiched between two stories that deal with Joseph. In chapter 37, we see Joseph's piety at home. That Joseph lived in a righteous way. He was a pious person, and we saw that in chapter 37 very clearly. He honored his father. He spoke the truth. He took a stand. He let the chips fall where he may, or where they may. He had a real strong walk with the Lord. He had a piety in his family or among his family that caused jealousy and envy in the hearts of his brothers. So chapter 37, we see his piety at home. And then in chapter 39, we see his position abroad. We're going to see, starting in chapter 39, how he begins to move up the ladder and becomes very prominent and very powerful abroad in the land of Egypt. So between chapters 37 and 39, that is 37, his piety at home, and then his position, prestige, and power abroad, there's this story, chapter 38, that deals with his older brother Judah. And the reason that this story is here is because it provides a very vivid contrast The life of Judah at this time is rather sad and sordid, whereas the life of Joseph is sparkling and spectacular. And so consequently, this provides a contrast. You know, if you go into a jeweler's shop, they'll often show you the diamonds against a backdrop of black velvet. They put the black velvet there down on the glass and they'll put the diamonds there on the black velvet so that the black velvet provides a real contrast with the sparkle, the beauty, the brightness of the diamond. Well, in this story, chapter 38, it's kind of the black velvet, if you would, that allows the sparkle and the beauty of Joseph's walk to be seen as it's contrasted with Judah's behavior. Well, it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren. He leaves his family, his brothers, and he turned in to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. This Adulamite, whose name was Hira, was a pagan pal of Judas. He would not be, if you would, a believer. He would not be a godly guy. He He's a pagan pal, as we shall see. It's an unfortunate friendship. It's an unfortunate thing, really, that Judah is now choosing as his friends people that were not in his family, if you would. They were not in the household of God, if you would. They were not in the believing community. They were not folks of faith. But Judah begins to strike up this friendship, and he'll be called the friend of Judah as the passage unfolds. 
with Hira, his pagan pal who lived in a pagan place. The story today in the news, many of you caught. The guy in Kentucky died this morning. The guy that yesterday the news reported, a couple of buddies, a couple of friends, they were drinking buddies. And the one guy, as they were drinking together, said to his friend, I bet you that you can shoot this half-empty beer can from off my head. So he puts this half-empty beer can on the top of his head. And he tells his buddy, I bet you can do it. I bet you can, I bet you can shoot off this beer can from off my head. They had been drinking, you know, for several hours. So his friend took the gun and cocked the hammer and aimed and hit his friend in the head. Sad story. And the guy died this morning. You know, and here's some guys that are, you know, drinking buddies, pagan pals, having a good time. One's dead, and the other, of course, will spend time in jail for at least manslaughter. We need to be careful who we choose to hang around, who we choose to recreate with, who we choose to say, hey, let's be buddies. We need to be oh so careful. And here Judah, he's making a step already in the wrong direction when he has this this buddy, this pagan pal named Hira. So he saw there as he goes down to this area where Hira was hanging out, he saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her. He went in unto her. And she conceived and bore a son. He called his name Ur. So now he's with his pagan pal. He sees a little Canaanite cutie. And he says, hey, I'm going to take her to be my baby, you see. And so they conceive this child. And they call the name of their firstborn Ur, which means watchman. Well, she conceived again and bore a son. And this son was really pagan. He was a barbarian. She called his name Onan the Barbarian. (laughs) So now they've got two kids. (laughs) Number one is Ur, and number two is Onan. She conceived yet again and bore a son. And they called his name Shelah. They really wanted a girl. (laughs) Well, he was at Chizba when she bore him. Now Judah, as years passed now, took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Interesting. This was during the time of arranged marriages, as we've talked about before. I can recall as a teenager hearing my pastor at Calvary Baptist Church talk about arranged marriages in the Old Testament. And I can remember sitting there in the balcony. I can remember very clearly when I first heard about the way in the Old Testament times the parents 
you know, lined up who their kids would, would marry. And I just thought that was the most terrible idea. I, can, I, I sat there in the balcony and I thought, man, what a bummer. You know, if you had your marriages arranged by, by parents, you know, I mean, you couldn't even pick out your own wife. That would be terrible. I've since changed my opinion. <laughs> I think it's an awesome idea. I think it's a great plan. I wish it was that way. I think it's a wonderful thing, but be that as it may. So Judah now, the years pass by, and he takes a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. The name Tamar means literally palm tree. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. Now, a lot of times when people read a phrase like that, they say, ooh, that's brutal, that the Lord would slay a man for being wicked. Not really. A man can become so wicked that it is actually an act of mercy for the Lord to put him out of his misery. A person can be so caught up in sin that they're destroying their own lives, their own bodies. A person can be so caught up in sin that he's just ruining himself, slowly, painfully, torturously. And the Lord, in His mercy, I believe, will put a man, a woman, who is continuing to live wickedly out of their misery. The Bible talks about there is a sin unto death. It's not one act that a person does. It's a way that a person chooses to live his or her life. There comes a time when the Lord will put that person out of his misery, out of her misery, and in so doing, protect others. Because the problem with wickedness is it's contagious. Wicked people suck other people into their wickedness. Wicked people draw other people into their depravities. And so the Lord, in His mercy towards that person who's killing themselves anyway, and to protect those that have not been infected, will, will sometimes slay a person. There's a sin unto death. And in this case, such is the case with Ur. He did wickedly what he did, how he lived, we don't know. God is not a gossip. God just says he was wicked. The Lord slew him. Well, then Judah, the dad, after now seeing his firstborn son dead, he says to Onan, Now go in unto thy brother's wife, Tamar, marry her, and raise up seed to thy brethren. Interesting. You take the widow of your older brother Ur, marry her, and the kids that you have will count as Ur's kids. They'll carry on Ur's name. You see. Even though you and Tamar conceived them, they'll count as Ur's kids. 
This is one of 34 Old Testament laws, if you would, that have their beginning in the book of Genesis. This later on becomes part of the Levitical law for the nation of Israel. 34 of the laws that we read about, the laws of Moses in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, actually have their origin, their genesis, if you would, in the book of Genesis. Certain things take place in Genesis that are later on incorporated into the law, and this is one of those. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, tell about that in Levitical law, in the laws of Israel, centuries later, that if a man died, that his brother, the next in line, his brother, was to marry the widow of the guy that died, and was to conceive a child with the widow, and that that child that was conceived, you see, would be actually the dead brother's firstborn. If that man, the older brother, had not yet had children, that's the key. If he already had kids, then that wouldn't be applicable. But if he hadn't yet had kids, then it would be up to the next oldest brother to step in to marry that woman and to conceive children. And the first child would actually then be counted as the dead brother's son, even though it wasn't conceived by the brother who's dead, obviously. Now, this would make for some very interesting discussions when they were getting ready to find a wife for the firstborn son. The other brothers, the younger ones, would be very interested and I'm sure would offer very strong opinions and give advice to mom and dad who were arranging the marriage. Oh, no, 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 don't do that dog bait. Don't go, no, you know, because they would... They would know that, that they could very well end up, you see, with their older brother's wife. So they would, they would, I'm sure, weigh in with their opinions when these marriages were being set up for their older brothers. So, Onan, verse 9, he knew that the seed should not be his, that the child that would be conceived would not be his but it would be actually his brother Ur's, according to this tradition, which would become a law. So it came to pass, when he went in unto his brother's wife, that he spilled it on the ground, his seed, lest he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Wherefore, he slew him also. Now, this verse is often misused to, in some people's eyes, say that you should not be uh, involved in any kind of birth control because they'll look at this text and they'll say, see what happened? Onan, the barbarian here, was practicing a form of birth control and, and God slew him. Listen. The issue wasn't birth control. It wasn't about family planning. It was about family plotting. The thing that Onan's doing here, it's not 
not a, it's not a statement about birth control. Onan was saying, I'm not going to honor my older dead brother in the way that my father has asked me to. I'm going to despise the directive of my father. I'm going to trample, if you would, on the casket of my brother. In other words, it was a wicked thing that he was doing. Disobeying his father. Dishonoring his brother. He said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sire a son that, that's gonna grow up with Ur's name. No way. He saw this as an opportunity. Hey, I wanna be the big kahuna, the head hog at the trough. I don't want Ur, who was the oldest, to now have a son that would put him in a primary position. I don't want that. I want me to be numero uno and my kids who follow after me. It was, you see, a power play. It has nothing to do with God's opinion, if you would, about family planning. It has everything to do with a guy that was disobedient to his father, disrespectful to his brother, and determined to manipulate the situation to become a power player. It was evil. It was wrong. People often ask me what my opinion is on birth control. My opinion is this. God made man in His image. God is a creator. He's the creator. And He gave man the ability to also create miraculously. That is in conceiving, in bearing children. Man, if you've been in the labor room, if you would, when your wife was having a baby, or women, if you were there when you were having a child, <laughs> most of you were. <laughs> it's a miracle. I mean, the cliches, you know, but when you're there, you say, this is truly miraculous. This baby created by a husband and a wife. It's a miracle. Now, God is a creator. He makes man in his image and he gives man the ability to be a creator too. That is, to create life in that way. Children. But I noticed that my father, the Creator, created for six days. And he looked at all that he had made and he said, good enough. And he stopped. <laughs> he rested from his labor, we are told. <laughs> and I think there's a time when you can... Husbands and wives, rest from your labor. Wives, quite literally. I think that you too, in my opinion, can do just what Father God did when He said, enough, this is good. I've created six days worth of stuff and this is enough. Now, could God have kept on creating? How long could He keep on creating? Yeah. So some people say, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna 
however many kids God sends, me and my wife, we're going to have. Okay. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> you know? You can create forever. I mean, you can... And I'm not knocking that. And if that's somebody's conviction, I respect that. I stand in awe of their uh, their decision. More power to them. And I mean that. I respect those that have that conviction. But I also am firmly convinced that the Bible does not frown upon by any stretch of the imagination when a couple decides to say, it is very good what we've created, and they rest from their labor. Well, this guy was not being smitten or knocked down or judged because of birth control. It has nothing to do with that. So when this text is used in that way, and you'll hear people say, look, here is an example of birth control. Onan, he spills his seed on the ground, and God killed him because it was wicked. No, they're missing the entire point of the story. This does not teach on or allude to a biblical position on birth control, you see. So he was plotting to gain power, and God saw what he was doing, disobeying and dishonoring his family and plotting to gain power and control, and God slew him too. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law. Now he's got two sons dead, and Judah says to Tamar, who was married to both of them, Remain a widow at thy father's house, till Shelah, my son, be grown. For he said, lest peradventure he die also, as his brothers did. So Judah says, uh, listen, Tamar, you married my first son, he's dead. You married my second son, he's dead. Why don't you go home to your parents? And I'll let you know when, when Sheila you know, gets old enough to, to, to marry you, to step in and do what is supposed to be done, that is raise seed, as we talked about before. Judah is afraid. He's beginning to suspect that maybe, you know, Tamar is uh, not good for the family. So he sends her away. <laughs> he sends her, you, you go back to your parents' house. So Tamar went, verse 11 says, and dwelt in her father's house. Well, in the process of time, verse 12, Shua, the daughter of Shua, is an allusion to the fact that Shua's dad's name was also Shua. But Shua, Judah's wife, died. So now this Canaanite cutie that Judah married years previously, with whom he had these three sons, Ur and Onan and Shelah, well, now Shua herself, she dies. Now Judah was comforted. That is, he was in the process of recovering from his grief. He was desiring to be comforted. His, his gal has now gone on. Shua is dead. So Judah was comforted, or wanting to be comforted is the idea. And he goes up to his sheep shearers, to Timnath. Interesting place he went. 
Who else went to Timnath? Who recalls? Samson. Interesting. He goes to Timnath, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. Okay, I need to recover from my grief, so I'm going to go hang out at Timnath with my pagan pal Hira. Now it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, your father-in-law, Judah, he goes up to Timnath to shear sheep. Now she's been waiting. Time has passed. She realizes that, that Judah sent her home to her daddy because Judah had no intention of giving Shelah, his third son, to be her hubby. She senses something is not quite right in River City. She senses there's something going on that, hey, Judah is not going to give me his third son as he's supposed to by his own account. So what does she do? Well, Tamar, she put off her widow's garments, and now she wraps herself in a veil, and she sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given unto him to be his wife. Now Judah walks by. He's hanging out with Hira. He saw her. And he thought her to be a harlot because she took off her mourning clothes, M-O-U-R-I-N-G, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. You know what I'm saying. Her grieving garments. And she dresses up like a temple prostitute. The word harlot there is literally in the Hebrew, the consecrated, which means that she was dressed up like a temple prostitute because in the area that now Judah is hanging out, they were Canaanite people and part of their worship of their Canaanite gods and goddesses involved temple prostitution. That's the way they got converts, if you would. They had women who were actually serving as prostitutes in their little high places and groves and temple areas and these young men would be drawn in because the women would go after them, and then they would convert over to these various pagan practices and religions in order to enjoy the uh, favors that these temple prostitutes were offering. So she dresses up like one of those, a temple prostitute, or the King James puts it, a harlot. Don't think, though, it would be like a, a street walker. It's more like she's dressed in the temple prostitute's garb, uh, so it would cover her completely. She covered her face, verse 16. Well, Judah sees her. He turned unto her, by the way, and said, Go, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. He did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Well, she says, because she's all wrapped up or veiled, what have you, what wilt thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me? What are you going to give me? If you want to have relations with me sexually, what will you give me? She says. He said, verse 17, Well, I will send thee a kid from the flock. Uh, I don't have any money on me right now. 
There's no temple around here, so that can't be what you're really up to right now. You don't take Visa, do you? (laughs) And so, what he says is, I'll tell you what I'll do. I I don't have any money. And uh, I'll send you a kid, though. I'll send you, you know, a, a kid from the flock. She said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till you send it? So I know that you're not kidding around. <laughs> that was really bad. <laughs> I, So you're going to send me a kid from your flock, eh? Well, how will I know that you're going to come through? Give me a pledge so that I know that I'm going to get this kid from your flock. He said, well, what pledge shall I give thee? And she said, thy signet and thy bracelets and the staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it her and came in unto her. And she conceived by him. I want you to note this. Please note this. What she asks for and why the Holy Spirit has this written into the story. Why this happened in this way. The signet was the ring that a man would wear in which he would use it as a seal on business transactions or on correspondence. They would melt wax and they would stamp their signet ring into the wax or they would put it into a clay tablet or what have you. Different ways they would use the ring. But the signet spoke of the person. It's your identity. It's your signature. It's your John Henry. The possession, the bracelets, the bracelets that were on his wrists and around his neck, that would include necklaces as well, would be indicating a man's wealth, his possessions, even as they are today. You know, you see these guys in the NBA or the NFL or whatever, and these baseball players and all this, you know, all these chains they have around their necks and bracelets on their wrists. Why do they do that? Money, man. I mean, if you make $18 million a year or what have you, you know, want people to know, I guess. So, the signet, I want your ring, she says. I want your person. I want your possessions. And I want your staff. What does the staff speak of? Position. The staff. Even to this day, that idea has carried on down through history. You know, oh, my staff, we say. My staff will handle that. My staff will, you know, my my people will talk to your people for, for lunch, you know, or whatever the saying is. My step. So what does it signify? She is saying this this woman who is a in Judah's eyes a temple prostitute. She's saying, What do I want? I want your person, I want your possessions, and I want your power or your position. I'm going to strip you. And that's not coincidental. That's not accidental, that is exactly what happens when a man gives himself over to prostitution, 
You lose your person. You lose your possessions. You lose your position. When a man, when a person gets sucked into prostitution, immorality, sleazy stuff, the cost is high. The price is painful. What do I want? I want your signet ring. I want your possessions. I want your staff, which speaks of your power, your positions. I want it all. And he gave it to her. Isn't that amazing? He gave it to her. How this story has been repeated over and over and over throughout human history. A man just giving it all up giving it all away for a one-night stand with a floozy. Sad. And he gives it up. Well, she arose and went away. Now she laid her veil from her. She took it off and put back on the garments of her widowhood. Now Judah, verse 20, still not knowing who she was, well, he sent the kid by the hand of his buddy, the pagan pal, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. I'm going to now send this kid so I can get my, my ring back and get my chains back and, and get my staff back. So he sends the kid. But his buddy, verse 20, last phrase, could not find her. How typical that is. A man will say, well, I'll get it back. I'll get it back. Okay. You know, so I've messed up a bit. So I cashed out there. I can get it back. That's what Judah thought. And Judah attempts to. But guess what? His buddy comes back and says, I can't find her anywhere. Your chains, your staff, your signet ring, man, they're gone. So this guy was looking for her. He asked the men, verse 21, of that place, where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they said, there's no harlot around here. What you talking about? There's no temple. There's no temple prostitutes. Uh-uh. And Judah said, let her take it to her, lest we be shamed. Oh, come on now, we've got to get this kid to her. I don't want to be shamed by not keeping my end of the bargain. It's amazing. Behold, I sent this kid, and thou hast not found her. Come on, buddy, he says to his pal. Find her. Get her this kid. You see, I don't want to be ashamed. Well, it came to pass, verse 24, after about three months, that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, hath played the harlot. And behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her forth and let her be burnt. Amazing story. Now, I can't believe she would do that. My daughter-in-law would be involved in whoredoms and immorality? I can't believe it. It's amazing how bad 
my sin looks when somebody else does it. And how it's not that big of a deal when I'm analyzing my own sin, you see, but if I see somebody else do it, my goodness! Shock, shock. It's always amazing to me how the human nature is that way. We are often most angry at, upset with, scandalized by the very sins that we struggle with ourselves when we see somebody else succumbing to them. That's oftentimes what causes us to react vehemently. And, and you can just kind of make a note of that as the years go by. And you can sort of watch it work out in your own histories. But oftentimes the people that are so angry with another person's sin or another person's tendencies, in reality, it oftentimes is true that that's the very sin that they are struggling with themselves. Do you recall the Jimmy Swagger, Jim Baker deal? Perfect example of that. Jimmy Swagger was just so angry with Jim Baker and called him a cancer on the body of Christ. And all of that went on and on, only to find out that Jimmy Swagger was struggling with the same sorts of sin, only in a much greater degree. I've noticed this, and perhaps you have as well. People will get vehement and angry and bitter and upset, and when I see that happening, I often think, I wonder. It could very well be that that person is struggling, perhaps not successfully, fighting off the very temptations that they're scandalized by or upset about another person succumbing to. Let her be burnt! But here's the interesting thing that you guys that are Bible students should note. Did you know that later on in the book of Leviticus, chapter 21, verse 19, it says that a woman who is the daughter of a priest who is a whore, that's the word it uses, committing whoredoms, let her be burnt in the fires. So you say, well then, Judah was, Judah was then... Right, because later on in the Levitical law, it says that the woman who is caught up in the whoredoms, that if she is the daughter of a priest, that she is to be burned in the fire. The daughter of a priest who's involved in whoredoms is to be burned in the fire. So you say, so Judah, in a sense then, would be justified. But wait a minute. Who was Judah? Now listen. Who was Judah? Was Judah a priest? No. From what brother would the priestly tribe ultimately come, as the story goes on in the Old Testament? What brother of the... Bro Levi, of course. Now, in this, it really intrigues me. Because later on, God will say, if a man has a daughter and the man is a priest, and she commits whoredoms, then she is to be burned in the fire. Judah says, let my daughter, my daughter-in-law, let her be burned, which means that he looks at himself, if you would, as being more spiritual than he is. More righteous, more holy, if I can use the analogy. He puts himself in a place of 
piety, of spiritual prominence. Well, let her... And he's not. That's the interesting thing. And that's what often happens when a person says, burn them, fire them. In reality, it can be because the person thinks of himself or herself more highly than they ought to think. Who should be burnt if anybody's going to be burnt in this story? Judah. In the book of Proverbs, I'll read it to you. (laughs) Can a man take fire in his bosom and not be burned? Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? So he that touches the immoral woman shall not be innocent. Whosoever commits adultery lacks understanding. He that doeth it destroys his own soul. Proverbs six twenty-seven through 32 Can a man take fire into his bosom and not be burned? It's just so passionate, people say. There's just such a, a passion between him and me or her and me, a person may say to us. But you're going to get, I'm going to get, we're going to get burned. You can't take fire to your bosom and not be burned. Now our Father devoted a whole chapter in the middle of the Joseph story to say, I really want you to know this. You can either be a Joseph or a Judah. Purity, which leads to success, or immorality, which leads to heartache and burnout. Because after this chapter, Judah as a person, he disappears from the story. And the story goes right back into Joseph again. Judah, it's a sad, sad deal what's happening here. He he takes on pagan friends. He takes on a, a, a pagan wife, a Canaanite lady, and then he commits adultery or fornication with a prostitute and and then he gets mad because his own daughter-in-law now is pregnant and he can't believe it which is a double standard which just proves his own problem and he thinks of himself more highly than he should well you know only the priest could say my daughter is immoral and she should be burnt in the fire Judah wasn't a priest His family offspring would not go into priestly ministry. It's amazing. Let her die. Let her be burnt in the fire. Verse 25, so when she was brought forth, now she's coming to the fire that her father-in-law is going to throw her into. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man whose these are, this ring and this chain and this staff, This is the man that impregnated me. Discern, I pray thee. Whose are these? Do you know who these are? This ring and this staff and these chains. This is the man that that impregnated me. 
Dad, do you know who these are by any chance? Who, who, who owns this, this, this ring with the great big J? You know? <laughs> and Judah acknowledged them, verse 26, and said, She hath been more righteous than I. She is more righteous than me. Here I said, burn her! Fire her! But now that it all comes to light, she is more righteous than me. What a grand statement. Too bad it had to come out in this way. She's more righteous than I. I gave her not to Sheila. I, I held back. Sheila should have been given to her. My third son should have taken on the responsibility, but I, I didn't let him. Now watch this. Watch this. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I held back my third son from Tamar. She's more righteous than me, but watch this. And he knew her again. No more. Sad. He looks at her and says, You're right. You're more righteous than me. I, I'm a bigger heel, a bigger sinner, a bigger jerk than you could ever be. And then he never talks to her again. He admits that he is the greater sinner. But he never talks to his daughter-in-law again. Disavows knowledge of her. Sends her away. Doesn't give her the time of day. Judah had an opportunity here to really get things right by saying, I have no right for burning you, firing you. It's... It, it, I'm wrong. Honey, forgive me. And let's be family again. But you see, Judah's sin was exposed unwillingly. He didn't come and confess. It was exposed by the staff, by the bracelets, by the ring. He was not truly, truly in his heart full of compassion. He was just caught in the situation and said, okay, what can I say? Those are my things, chains and staff and ring, but I'm never going to talk to her again. Which means that Judah never really got it. And so he will just, as I said, fade away when this chapter is over into nothingness. Now let me tell you something. Let me tell you who fades away into nothingness. The person who fades away into nothingness in God's economy is the person who is unforgiving towards others, fault-finding with others, demanding that others be fired or burned, and then, and then when their own sin is exposed. There is no desire to see any kind of 
compassion, forgiveness, restoration, letting it go, giving it up, just going on in a right way. But like Judah, even though he was forced to say, okay, 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 yet he will never, ever again be a player in God's economy. Not Judah personally. So he knew her not again. Came to pass, though, she's pregnant, in the time of her travail that, behold, twins were in her womb. It came to pass when she travailed that the one put out his hand and the midwife took and bound upon this one's hand a scarlet thread, saying, this one came out first. So a little hand appears. There's twins, you know, and they're coming out and a little hand appears. And the midwife there wraps a scarlet thread around the hand of the first one. This is the beginning of the scarlet thread story. You might recall how the scarlet thread runs through the Bible. The scarlet rope that Rahab, another harlot, would place from her window down the outside wall of Jericho to signify where she was because she would help the spies, the Jewish spies, and her house would then be saved. How was it saved? By marking it with a scarlet cord. What would Christ himself declare himself to be? A scarlet worm. We've talked about that in many studies. And you can follow the scarlet cord all the way through the Old Testament pointing to the cross of Calvary. This is the beginning of that line of understanding. Why? Watch this. He comes out first. came to pass that as he drew back his hand, that behold, his brother came out. Does that ring a bell? Sounds like who? A little struggle going on. Yeah, Jacob and Esau. And she said, how hast thou broken... For, how did you beat your brother? I mean, he was his hand was already out. And, and, and now, somehow you pulled him back and you shot through and you're here, you see. How, how hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore his name was called Perez, which means, how hast thou made this breach? How did you do this? That's the idea there. How, how, did, you, how, did, you, how did you do that, you see? How did you break through? How did you come forth? And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So then the guy who had the scarlet thread, he comes out after his brother came out first, even though his hand came out before his brother did. Does that make sense to you? And you say, well, what is the meaning of all this? Well, keep in mind, the scarlet thread points to all the way through the Old Testament. It points to what? Jesus and the cross. So here comes the scarlet thread on the hand, the very hand that Jesus would have pierced with a nail pinned to the cross. His hands were red, scarlet. His face was scarlet. His back was scarlet. His feet were scarlet. His side was scarlet. He was bloodied, the Bible says, beyond human recognition. He was marred more than any other man. It's Jesus with the scarlet hand. 
But then a miracle happens. How did you break forth? Because he died. And they put him, if you would, in the womb of the tomb. And guess what? He broke out. In other words, how did this happen? You were dead. You were crucified. You were in the tomb for three days, and yet he comes out and he's alive. It's, it's a picture here, if you can see it. It's a picture of what will be this great mystery. The one who had the scarlet hand, Jesus Christ, would break forth in such a way that people would say, how did you do that when he arose again from the dead? Both of, it took two babies, if you would, to picture the type, the story of the scarlet thread and then the mystery, the miracle of coming out, you see. Something else to note here before we close this chapter. Tamar and her two sons. They're mentioned again in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Interesting that Tamar and the two boys, which picture the death and resurrection of Christ in a very interesting way. It's interesting that the Lord would say, I want this woman who did things that were very questionable, who dressed up like a prostitute and tricked her father-in-law in such a way that she became pregnant. She, she was manipulative and deceptive and lacked morals. And yet, and yet, she will be connected to my son. That's grace. That is grace. What is grace? Unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. That's grace. She's in the genealogy of Jesus. That's our Lord. I might drop the ball. You may mess up. We may blow it big time. But I'll tell you, the Lord has a way of saying, I'm going to grab that situation. If you link it to me, if you look on me, if you live for me, I'm going to turn that thing around and I'm going to bring it into a historical context. You will go down eternally in the linkage to my son, in the genealogy of Jesus. And everyone who has dropped the ball, everyone who has messed up, everyone who has fallen down needs to know that Tamar's story is a proof, a powerful picture of the unbelievable, wonderful, redemptive grace of God. It's grace. But wait. But wait, 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 wait. That's not all. Tamar has shown grace. But Judah, Judah, the person of Judah never again appears. He's, he's off the scene, really, as far as a main player. Oh, 
there'll be an illusion or two, but he's, he's off the scene as a main player. He's, he's basically through. But wait. But wait. Jesus chooses to identify himself in heaven as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Tamar, including her, is grace, but including Judah in that way is amazing grace, you see. I mean, the grace of God scooping up Tamar on one hand and then scooping up Judah on the other. Judah in this story is a big jerk. I mean, really. Everything he does is wrong. And yet God has a way of taking jerks like you and jerks like me. And with amazing grace, he can redeem that too. Interesting, interesting story. Now in the next chapter, it's a huge one. Because we just saw Judah's immoral activity, Judah's pagan tendencies, Judah's judgmental, harsh attitude towards his daughter-in-law. Judah just drops the ball big time. In the next chapter, which is one that all of you virtually are familiar with, we see a contrast now to Joseph. Whereas Judah plunged into immorality, where Judah gave himself to a prostitute, you see, in the next chapter, contrast that with Joseph. And Joseph comes through with flying colors. He's going to deal with sexual temptation in a way that is a model for every single person, and especially, not exclusively, but especially for young people. The lesson is a big one. And it's one that needs to be heard in light of today's article in USA Today. You might have seen it. In today's USA Today, entitled No Blushes Here, only 4% of women and 1% of their husbands-to-be are still virgins on their wedding night says a survey of 3,000 engaged women in Brides Magazine out Tuesday. The only real issue is whether or not to have sex at their parents' home before they're married. And it goes on to say that about 40% of them do have sex in their parents' home, hers, or 41% his. About one-third, 29%, do not stay overnight at their parents' homes. But this really stunned me. I mean, I quoted some statistics to you a, a study or two ago about Sweden. And now we are at the same level as Sweden. 4% of women and 1% of men are virgins as they approach the marriage altar. Amazing. 4% of women, 1% of men, according to USA Today, today's issue. And I think, man, if that is even in the ballpark, 
then wow, we as moms and dads and grandparents, aunts and uncles, we've got a lot of work to do. Because somehow, if this is even close to being true, our young people, our our kids, are not understanding. The fact that they're destroying something which is important and we need to teach them the whys of purity and the hows of purity. And after we've seen now Judah's story, messing up his family, two dead sons and a pregnancy with a daughter-in-law and And now he doesn't even talk to her and he just goes off into oblivion after seeing that messy, sordid, sad story. Oh, God's grace is still there. Yeah. But his life really on earth ends up to be zip. And then we look at Joseph. And we will see how Joseph's stock continues to soar. His star shines He impacts huge amounts of people. His name is known. His life matters. Good things happen through him and to him. Yes, he goes through heartbreaks and tragedies and setbacks and difficulties. We'll read about that. But my goodness, how Joseph is in contrast to Judah. And one of the things that makes him so contrasting with Judah is that Joseph has bedrock integrity. Judah doesn't. And so, it's my prayer that as we look at this next chapter, that we're going to see, yeah, Lord, your ways are right, and man, let's go for it. And I thank you, Lord, that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. And now, Lord, I can see what your word has to say, and this is how I'm going to choose to live. And this is the way I'm going to teach my children to walk. To not be a Judah, but to be a Joseph. That they might be successful and impacting and effective and not just lose their lives in mundanity, in mediocrity. It's a great story. Come back next Wednesday. We'll take a look at it. And we'll see how Joseph, in contrast to Judah, deals with temptation. And there's some very, very practical lessons, some very important truths for us. If you have junky television, get rid of it. If you're going to see movies that have scenes, stop it. If you're frequenting places where there's immoral talk and immoral activities, don't go there anymore. This is the Word of God. A warning. A warning for you and a warning for me. A man cannot take fire to his bosom and not be burned. Oh yeah, well I've got an asbestos vest, you say. It's not going to work that way. Listen, no one gets away with immorality. 
whether you're on the internet taking peeks, whether you're reading novels that are trashy and cheap, no one gets away with it. It will cost you. Ask Judah. You'll pay the price. The wages of sin is death. You'll pay the price. I'll pay the price. We'll pay the price. Now, it's not God, again, who's saying, I'm going to beat you up and knock you down and do you in. It's the sin itself that brings about the repercussions. Now, listen to what I'm going to say here. Because you say, eh. You know, you took a long time on this chapter tonight, and, and it doesn't really apply to me. Here's what I've learned over the, over the years, and I can share with you with absolute certainty. God never wastes his warnings, ever. If God put a chapter in this book and he brought you here this night, then there's a reason. You say, well, I'm not coming next week then. <laughs> God never wastes his warnings. And I want to tell you something. Every time I have erred, big or small, every single time I have erred, in a big way or a little matter, Every time I have erred over these 40 plus years that I've walked with the Lord, every time I have erred, God has always been so faithful to warn me before I made the error. The problem is, sad to say, I thought, not a problem. Now, Lord, you need to warn other people about that, but... I've got that wired. That's not a problem. Now, other areas that you could talk to me about, maybe, but not that one or that one or that one. And our Father is so faithful. He will always warn No one, no one, no one falls into sin. You walk in one step at a time. And all along the way, as you're walking towards that pit, saying, ah, I'm not going to fall in. I'm just going to take a peek. <laughs> you know, as your God is there all along the way, warning you, warning me, warning us. The problem is, is I think, oh, that's not a problem. Lord, you, I, I appreciate you're bringing this to my attention, but this is not a problem for me. And I keep walking until, boom. Anytime God speaks to your heart through the Word, at a Bible study, in your devotions, please take it to heart. God never wastes His warnings. Never. And our Father is faithful to always tell you and tell me 
listen. 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 You're headed down a course that's going to bring about a loss of possession, a loss of position, a loss of person. You're headed down a course that's going to bring you real problems. Don't do it. And so, Father, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would speak to my heart, to our hearts today. And that we would rejoice, yes, Lord, rejoice in Your grace. The way that You could scoop Tamar up and that You could bring even Judah back in to a grand place as far as it relates to Your Son and eternity. But we also see the heartbreak of Tamar and the emptiness of the life of Judah on earth. And I pray that you would protect me and protect my brothers and sisters. Please, cause us to not destroy our own souls through immoral stuff, through moral compromises. Cleanse us now, Lord, with the blood of Your Son. I thank You, Lord, that because we are in You, that all things do become new. How I thank You for that. But we also understand, Lord, that what is sown will be reaped. And Father, may we as a group of people choose to leave this place tonight determined to walk wisely. Bless now these your people in Jesus' name. Guide them, protect them for Jesus' glory. Oh, bless them. May they be prosperous and successful and rich in the things of the Spirit and rich in the treasures of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.